Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. And uh, today we are going to continue our series, You Asked For It. Uh, originally, this is going to be a three-week series. I had the calendar for the rest of the year figured out. And then at the last minute, like at the 11th hour, we had several questions submitted. So we're going to do this week and also next week. We'll finish up the series. Uh, you asked for it. And this is where you ask questions about anything, any topic, Bible-related, faith-related, or world-related, news-related, whatever. And we try to see what the Bible says about those questions or topics or issues that you submitted. So this week, there was the question card was just a series of sort of questions or thoughts uh, regarding the same type of person uh, from the Old Testament. And so what I'm going to do basically is sort of condense those into one large question, and we're going to work through the story of a man named Abraham. Now, not, not the whole story, about a 20-year period of his life. And we're going to hopefully answer, hopefully most of the questions that were on that card, we're going to go through about a 20-year period of his life chronologically, and uh, hit some major points. And I will just say that the message is not complicated, but the subject matter is complicated. Uh, it's emotional. It's personal. Because it deals with relationships. Okay? So here's the main question that our, we're going to focus on fleshing out a lot of things about this today. Today's question is this. Can you explain the complicated relationship between Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael? So, Abraham and Sarah, husband and wife. Hagar, uh, not really a wife, but kind of. We'll talk about that. That's part of the complicated part of this whole topic. And then Ishmael is Abraham's son. So we'll look at all that today. And what we're going to do, we are going to go through a lot of the Bible here, but then at the end we will find two applications for our lives. Because you're like, okay, that's great, all those stories, all that makes sense, there's something that I can get from it, but what do I really walk away from this story about Abraham? And we'll look at that before we're done today. So, we're going to start here in Genesis 16, and this is going to introduce us to what I would call levels of problems. There are some problems that already exist at the beginning of uh, Genesis 16, but by the end of Genesis 16, there are a lot more problems that have happened in these few short verses. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to jump off here at this complicated story about these people and their relationship to one another. So, Genesis 16, starting at verse number 1 says, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. That's the initial problem. Okay, that's the first level of problem here. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarah's proposal. So Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. But not really. We're getting complicated already. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So we already know they've been trying this for a long time. They've been trying to have kids for a long time. God's promised them a child a long time ago. Hasn't happened yet. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. That's how that works, boys and girls. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarah with contempt. Then Sarah said to Abram, 
this is all your fault, right? That's what she says. I was going to add something in there, but I don't need to. I don't need to add anything in there. She said to Abram, this is all your fault. I, my decision is your fault. That's what she's saying. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Spoiler, they're both wrong. We'll talk about that. Abram replied, look, she is your servant. Let's pass the buck here, Abram, if we can do that. She's your servant. This is your problem. So you deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarah treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. There is a problem at the beginning of Exodus. There's a problem there too, but at the beginning of Genesis 16, there's a problem. Abraham, Abram at this point, and Sarah have been promised by God they will have descendants. Numerous descendants. The problem is she's barren and they're both really old. And they keep waiting and waiting and waiting and she's still barren and they're even older and they get antsy. They get frustrated. They sort of, sort of get ahead and they complicate things even more. So when it comes to these, we'll talk about these three people for a few minutes and then we'll keep going through their story. So we have Abram and Sarah, husband and wife. Hagar, who is a servant of Sarah's, her, kind of her head servant. And there are no innocent parties in this story. All three of these people are guilty of some sort of mistake or some sort of error that causes this web to become even more tangled. If there is one that's the most innocent, it's probably Hagar, but let's look at all three here for just a minute and see what they were thinking, what they were feeling, and why they made the decisions that they made to cause this problem to become even more, even more problems, okay? So let's start with Abraham here, Abram. So what his problem is, first, he feels pressure in this situation, and he makes a terrible judgment uh, an error in judgment here. So again, God's promised him a son, numerous descendants, they've been trying this for at least 10 years, nothing happens. Abram and Sarah, they get nervous, they get antsy, they get unsure, and so here's Abram's problem. The main problem of Abram is, he believes his wife's plan over God's word. That's what his problem is. He believes his wife's overnight, oh, I figured out the plan issue here, I figured it out, more than what God said over a decade ago. He gives in to the immediacy of, oh, we can solve this problem our way in our time. We don't have to wait on God to do anything anymore because we know what we're going to do. That's really the main mistake in all of this. And if you think back to Genesis 3, that's how the whole sin thing started too, where God told Adam and Eve to not eat of the fruit of this tree. But then Eve thinks, oh, you know, this, this magical talking serpent told me I should. Let's go with that plan. And Adam, being the genius that he clearly is, said, that sounds great. Let's do that. Let's, let's follow the magical talking serpent in the tree instead of the one who made us out of dirt. Let's, and so they do it. Same thing here. God spoke to Abram and said, I'm going to give you many numerous descendants. And that's all he said. He didn't say when or how or where, how it's going to happen. And, but then Sarah has it all figured out at the end, last minute, overnight. Hey, I just thought of this. Let's just, you know, brainstorm here. He's like, let's do that. Let's not do what God said. Let's do something else. So we see sort of this thing here. So he went, he believed Sarah's plan over God's word. Let's look now at Hagar, kind of the, the middle person here. So she's caught in the middle. So the, the thing is, she becomes pregnant, and the scripture says that she immediately despises Sarah. And this is one of the direct questions that we're answering here is, why does she do that? Well, there's not really anything in the text per se, but there are, I think, two cultural possibilities as to why someone in this situation would react in that way. The first one is, a, is more of a stretch, but I think it's there. The second one is, is much more concrete in the culture, even though it's not in the text. I think the first reason that she would despise Sarah 
is she may feel like resentment for being used as a surrogate mom. Like, I don't have a choice in this. I'm a slave. I can't say no to you. I have to do anything and everything you tell me. And so culturally, this is normal. It's not like this is an abnormal thing in the culture. It happens all the time. We'll talk about that in a minute. But she might feel resentment. Like, I don't, I, I don't want to do it this way. I don't, want to have I don't want to have your kids. I want to have my kids. I don't want to have slave children. I want to have my own children. And so there's some of that resentment that's possible under the surface uh, from Hagar. Here's the other thing that I think is much more concrete in the culture in this time is the fact that even though it says in the text that Sarah gave Hagar to be Abram's wife, they didn't really treat her that way. So now culturally in the, in the ancient Near East, and this, even scripturally this happens, where a person would have multiple wives or they would have wives and concubines. Basically, a concubine would be someone who would be in the form of Hagar. They're a servant, but they are used for procreation. So again, children are currency in the ancient Near East. In biblical terms, the more kids you have, the richer you are, right? Because you have an army that can carry on doing what you do. If you're a farmer, you have a whole army to continue on that family farm. If you have a business, you now have a whole litter to help run that business after you're gone. So there's current children are seen as currency in this way. So this is a normal practice in this time and place in the world. However... Hagar is not taken as another wife by Abram. She's not called a concubine. She's still Sarah's servant. So there's a slight here. She feels slighted. Hagar. So you would imagine her reaction's not going to be that great. Oh, maybe she agreed to this because she thought, oh, I'm not going to be a slave anymore. I'm going to move up a rung on the ladder. I'm going to be, I, I know how the culture works because I live in it, and so I, I see how this is. I'd rather be a concubine than a slave. It's not great, but it's better than what I'm doing right now, right? She's going to have certain privileges, certain rights in that position, or as a second wife that she otherwise does not have now. Also, her son, this will come up later, her son is also going to have future inheritance rights as a son of this man and a concubine or second or third wife or whatever, then as just a slave, son of a slave. So she, she's thinking short-term, she feels slighted, she feels used, because she's being used here by Abram and Sarah. She really is, culturally speaking. But then she's thinking long-term, this is not good for my child either. So that, that would explain why she's, she comes up pregnant, and then she just turns into, you know, tornado of anger, basically, toward her, her, her mistress, all right, her, her master. Then, then let's look at Sarah here for a second, then we'll move on forward in the story a little bit. So, first, Abram felt pressured, Hagar felt uh, slighted, and, but Sarah felt threatened. But that's the problem here. So she's barren for decades, she tries to rush God's plan, someone else gets pregnant like immediately, and then rubs it in her face, and so she feels jealous, she feels envious, she feels threatened by her servant who is able to perform this physical task that she cannot perform. And then it causes this issue, this friction in the relationship. But I, if you fast forward several hundred years, 1 Samuel chapter 1, you have a very similar story where you have a man who has two wives. One of them is barren. Her name's Hannah. She's barren. She cannot have children, and she wants desperately to have children. Well, the other, her husband's other wife has lots of children. She can actually just pop them out, baby, every nine months. Boom, 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 right? And so when they go, it says when they go to the temple, to the altar to worship, at, like while they're worshiping, the, the one wife is getting on to the other wife about, hey, yeah, look at all my kids there. Like, like in the middle of worship, just rubbing it in her face that she's barren and can't have children. 
So now you have to look at a different response here. So Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, she just takes this worry and care to God. She doesn't try to get angry or get even or be resentful like Sarah does here to cause more problems. But instead, Hannah says, okay, God, you know this desire that I have. You know this longing that I have. And only you can make this thing happen that cannot otherwise happen. So she prays and she says, okay, God, if you will give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. Now, we do baby dedications here, right? And we, we, we don't keep the children. They don't live at the church, right? That's what she's saying. That's what she does. When she says dedicate him, she means, like, when he's three years old, he's now going to live at the temple with the priest. That's where he, that's it. He's not, he's only mine for two or three short years. I'm going to give him to you. That's what she prays, and that's what she does. And Samuel becomes really the first national prophet of Israel. So you see the difference here in what Hannah does that leads to really good things and what Sarah does that leads to terrible things. Like there's already friction, there's already issues, there's already enough worry, enough disagreement, enough things going on, and she just makes things worse. Because it says she treated Hagar so terribly that her servant runs away. She runs off into the desert basically to die because that's going to be better than how Sarah's been treating me. But while Hagar is in the wilderness, and this happens later too, so we'll see this again later, an angel appears to Hagar in the desert and says, hey, go back and serve Sarah faithfully. Yeah, I know, I know, she treated you harshly, and she's been unfair, and they've used you, and it's not right. Go back and serve her. And then he also says, you're pregnant with a son. You're to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. So the angel says, hey, you're going to name your son God here because he's heard your cry of desperation here in the desert. He's visited you. So she goes back home. Let's look at the end of chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. So Hagar gave Abram a son, named, and Abram named him Ishmael, again, which means God hears. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. So, but there's still some tension here, as we'll see in a little bit. Sarah still doesn't quite see him as their son. Even though it was her idea, her plan, she tries to blame Abram, tries to get mad at Hagar. Really, it's her fault. She's the mastermind here, and it's all blown up in her face and made her feel things she wasn't ready for, didn't think she would feel, doesn't want to feel, but she, she's made the bed now. She's lying in it, but she's trying to blame everybody else and get mad at everybody else. So then at Genesis 17, God makes his official covenant with Abram and changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And he, and he reaffirms his covenant that I'm still going to give you a son through Sarah. Okay? Even though she made this plan and made things messy and just really caused problems, I'm still giving a son through her. However, he also does promise blessing to Ishmael, his firstborn son. He still says, through you he'll be blessed. And then it says in chapter 17, another, another question that was submitted along these lines, he promises uh, Ishmael he would have seven uh, leaders or seven princes that would, or twelve, I'm sorry, twelve uh, leaders or twelve princes that would come from him. And that are the twelve children that he will have. We'll talk about that here in a minute, too. But that, we'll come back to that. So now let's skip forward to chapter 18, and we're going to kind of go in a different area that seems off from the first part of the story, but we'll come back to these people in a second. So in Genesis 18, again, God has reaffirmed now in chapter 17, you will have a son through Sarah. But then some more time passes. Let's go back to Genesis 18. Uh, verse 1, the Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. 
One day Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he replied, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree uh, while water is brought to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue on your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. So Abram goes and prepares a meal, and it lists all the specifics of the meal in these verses. So I'm going to cut that out and get straight to, to verse 9. Same story. Three random visitors show up out of nowhere and visit Abraham. Verse 9, pick it up here. Where is Sarah, your wife? The visitors asked. She's inside the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. She's not, she's pretty far off here. Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, How could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, Can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, No, you did laugh. And this story seems to appear out of nowhere. Like, what is the point of this story? Who are these three random visitors, and what are they there for? That was another question that was asked. So, there's this fancy word that uh, maybe you've heard before. It's called a theophany. So, a theophany is this idea where God appears in human form in the Old Testament. So, before Christ, the second person of the Trinity appears in human form on the earth for 33 years or so. God, the Father, would come down in human form in some way and appear. It's a theophany. That seems to be what's happening here. And there's a few reasons for that that we'll get into for just a second. The first one is, at the beginning, it's not clear who these three men are. And when the author says that they are speaking, they will say, they said, or the men said, or the man said. Okay? But after Sarah laughs in the tent, then it switches. It's the same person speaking, but if you notice who gets credit for talking, it says, the Lord said. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord. That is God in this human form, speaking. It's the same guy that was there before. So he was always there before, but so for some reason, there's a switch made uh, after Sarah laughs, and now the Lord is speaking, what he was speaking before, when he said, hey, yeah, let's come and eat at Abraham's tent. So God is here in human form. Now, who are the other two people with him? There's two possibilities, and this is not a huge deal, but I just want to share it with you just for fun, right? Uh, the other two people could be, could be, it's less likely, could be, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It could be a three-in-one Trinitarian theophany here in Genesis 18. It's possible. What's probably more likely is that it's God and then two angels with him, because what you read about later, like the next chapter, I believe, is two angels appear in Sodom. It's possible these are the two same angels that are here in Genesis 18 that go visit Sodom. That's a whole different story for a whole different day. So it's, but we do know, we don't know, but it even says the Lord, right? It changes. The same guy who was there at the beginning is now, he's now saying the Lord. So here's another thing that we can get from this too. Um, when, and I mentioned this when I read it, but when, when God hears Sarah laugh, it says she, she laughed quietly to herself and whispered to herself. Now the men are talking out here in normal tone, so she can hear them from, she's not like right next to them. 
And she doesn't laugh out loud, like, ah, ah, ah. she's not rolling on the floor laughing. That's not what she's doing. She's kind of almost barely talking to herself. Yet the Lord hears her from where he's sitting. And he's, he does a funny thing here. He doesn't say, hey, Sarah, why'd you laugh? He doesn't do that. He asks Abraham, right? Go back to the text. He said, he asks Abraham, why did your wife Sarah laugh? So her response, again, what? It's fear. Why would that be her response? Because now she's like, okay, there's something to this, this, these people. There's some, she, she recognized something because her immediate, how did he hear me? How does he know even almost basically what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling? How does he know that? Well, it's because it's God visiting them in this human type of way. Uh, and there's other occasions of that. So if you go to Daniel, uh, the, the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they're coming to the fiery furnace. What happens when the king looks into the furnace and they're just walking around unharmed? One of the guards says, I look in there and it looks like the son of a god is in there with it. There's a fourth person. We threw three guys in. There's a fourth person. So the, the way that it's translated, sometimes it looks like the son of a god or the son of the gods, whatever. So it could be, that could be what we call it Christophany, where it is Christ there. It also could be a theophany where God's there. It doesn't make a huge difference, and I'm blabbering on. So I'll get to the other important stuff here. But that's just not, this is not just a one-off thing. This happens repeatedly uh, in the Old Testament, these theophanies. So her response is fear. She denies laughing, but then God said, no, you definitely laughed. And you definitely will have a son when I definitely come back a year from now. And so that's what happens. About a year later, she gives birth to her son, Isaac. So the child that God promised a couple decades before, finally, when Sarah is 90, when Abraham is 100, their son Isaac is born. The promise they've been waiting for for years and years and years is there. So now let's bring Hagar and Ishmael back into the story and really complicate things one more time. So they, have, they throw this huge party when Isaac's maybe two, maybe three years old, and this is uh, Genesis 21. So here's what happens a few years later. It says, when Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, so he's about two or three years old, maybe four, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and her Egyptian servant Hagar. See, again, again. She see, she's sliding Hagar 15 years later, almost 20 years later. That's, yeah, that's the illegitimate son. That's not how things worked back then, right? But that's how she's choosing to see this. She still has this in her heart. She saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham and her Egyptian servant Hagar, making fun of her son, Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of that slave woman and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son, Isaac. I won't have it. So what we see here, 20 years later, is times, times change, but emotions do not. This woman can hold a grudge. Okay? She can. So Isaac's born. They throw this big party. He's about three or four years old. You ever seen kids make fun of each other before? That's what's happening here, right? It's like... And again, yeah, Ishmael's probably 16, 17, 18 years old. He's poking fun at his kid brother at his party. It may be bullying, it may be normal, but the solution is not to banish him and his mom to die in the desert, okay? That's a bit of an overreaction by Sarah, but she's prone to do that, as we've already seen. She overreacts, and she says, get them out of here. So, so what she's already done, though, she's already slighted Hagar for all these years. She's still my servant. She's not my sister wife, if you want to call it that. She's not even my husband's concubine. This is not my son, our son. This is her son and my husband's other son 
Not, I have nothing to do with it, even though it was her plan. That was her plan. Remember? Go back to the beginning. It was her plan. Uh, so she still has this sort of hatred in her heart. She's already cheated Hagar. Now she's looking to cheat Ishmael. Because if I can get rid of him, then she even says, he's not going to share my son's inheritance. That is not going to happen. Get them out of here. So Abraham has a short struggle here because he does see Ishmael as his son. And he's like, oh, I don't know if I should do that. He agrees once again to this plan. And he banishes Hagar and his son Ishmael out into the wilderness to die. He gives them basically you know, a backpack with food and water and says, Good luck. So, just like the first time Hagar was in the wilderness, she's there with her son. They run out of food, they run out of water, they're there in the desert, and they're basically going to die. And so she says she leaves him there kind of under this bush or this tree, and says she walks a, a pretty good distance, and she just cries out, I do not want to watch my son die, so I'm going to lay here and die instead. And wouldn't you know it, another angel appears to her in the desert, again, for a second time. And the angel basically... First, what he does, he opens, says he opens her eyes, and she suddenly sees this well. Now, I don't think she just didn't see it. I think it just supernaturally appeared, right? So this well in the middle of the desert where she was wasn't there before, and now the angel appears, and it's there. So they survive. And basically, he reiterates, okay, because of Abraham's blessing from God, this son will also be blessed. He's not Isaac. He's not the son of promise, but there's still a blessing through him, through his father, Abraham. Uh, and so that, that's what happens there in the desert. He, the angel confirms the blessing, and they survive. So let's read one more scripture, and then we'll, we'll start to wrap it up with some application here in just a minute. So let's fast forward again, many, many years, like a hundred years or so, uh, and see how Ishmael ends up and what that means moving forward. This is Genesis 21, verse 20. God was with the boy Ishmael as he grew up in the wilderness. He became a skillful archer, and he settled in the wilderness of Paran. His mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt. Fast forward again now. Now we're fast forwarding 100 years. Genesis 25. This is giving us a short history of Ishmael. So it lists in the previous verses. This is verse 16. In the previous verses, it lists 12 hard to pronounce names that I'm not going to try. So I just, he had 12 sons. These are the 12 leaders, the 12 tribes, or the 12 princes that the angel prophesied about 100 and something years ago. They're there, okay? He has 12 sons, and it says, verse 16 of Genesis 25, These 12 sons of Ishmael became the founders of 12 tribes named after them, listed according to the places they settled and camped. Ishmael lived for 137 years, then he breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death. Ish Here's the key I want to focus on. Ishmael's descendants occupied the region from Havilah to Shur, Shur did, uh, which is east of Egypt in the direction of Asher, there they lived in open hostility toward all their relatives. Now you thought Sarah holding a grudge for 20 years was impressive. Talk about 100 years after something happened to you, your ancestors still hold a grudge to their neighbors, to their family members. Right? That's impressive. Now what if I told you this same grudge still exists 2,500 years later? Absolutely it does. You ever heard of something called the Middle East? Yes. Boom! We just got to the beginning of that conflict right here in Genesis. Okay? So, these 12 tribes become the 12 main Arab tribes of the Middle East. Those tribes in the 6th century predominantly adopt the religion of Islam. So, have you heard about like maybe an Israeli-Arab conflict recently? Like for the history of forever? This is where it begins. 
So it's a 2,500-year grudge, guys. It's not like a 20-year grudge. It's not a 100-year grudge. It's a 2,500-year grudge. The Arabs or the Muslims and the Jews, the Israelis, still in conflict today, still neighboring each other in the same region where this happened, still in conflict today. So now does Abraham's and Sarah's and Hagar's decisions mean a lot more? I think they do. I think they have a huge effect on what even happens today on the world stage. So that, that's a bit of application for the here and now, but there's two main points that I want us to quickly pull away from this for our life. So you're like, okay, great history lesson. I understand. I connect the dots. That's great. But now what do I walk away from? How does that help me this week when I leave this place? There's two thoughts that we can pull from this story. The first application is this. It's sort of a bad news, good news thing. Here's the bad news. Nothing good comes from us trying to do God's job. Okay? Nothing good comes from us trying to do God's job. Sarah and Abraham had a promise from God, but they got antsy, they got worried, then they got involved, and it ruined everything. This whole thing that we see in the Middle East could have been prevented had they just been patient and waited when God said to wait. Right? Had they just said, okay, we're going to... I had this idea, but Abraham's like, no, 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 no. God told me this. I don't care what you tell me, right? We're going to go with this plan, because it seems like a much better plan. Maybe more painful, maybe have to wait longer, but they couldn't have foreseen the issues that would come from the two and a half millennia in front of them. But still, they got worried and involved, and then it ruined everything. They didn't speed up the plan. They complicated the plan. So here's, here's where we can apply this. If you're waiting on God for something, can I encourage you, please just keep waiting. I know it's easy to say in a church service, it's easy to say, okay, Stephen, I'll do that. And then when you get out there and you're like, oh, he, re he actually meant that. Like, he actually meant to wait, right? He didn't mean, like, figure it out. And then do, like, if God's told you to wait, wait. The inverse is also true. Maybe God's waiting on you to do something for him to do the next part. If God's waiting on you, can you just hurry up and give up the program, right? Like, if you're getting in your own way in this situation in your life, can you get out of your own way and do what God's wanting you to do? It may be more painful or sacrificial or more difficult. It's probably going to be. Okay? If God's telling you to do something, it's probably going to be harder than what you would think of doing, than what you would like to do, than what I would like to do. So we have to sometimes get out of the way and let God do what he wants to do. If God's given you a specific instruction, follow the instruction. Don't try to skip to the back of the manual. You know, It's not going to work. There's going to be pieces in that place for a reason that you will not realize until like, oh, wow, I should have skipped that big, thick middle part. Okay? And then the other thing that I think we could pull from this is let God handle other people. Okay? Now, we want to be there for others. We want to help them and do life with them and encourage them. But then we can get to, I think it's, there's a fine line between encouraging and meddling. Right? Between helping and interfering. Right? It's a fine line. It's a gray area, but we have to kind of learn where that line is and where that gray patch might be because we're terrible judges of other people because we're limited in our scope, our understanding, our power, our influence. And we don't want to work above our pay grade. That's what I'm basically saying. God's got a job that only he can do. He's got a job for us that only we can do, and those aren't the same jobs. So the quicker we can learn that, the better. The more often we can stick to that, the better because Nothing good comes from us trying to do God's job. Here's a second application as we begin to wrap it up. And it's more of the positive, the good news of this story. In the midst of our mess, God can still make an appearance. 
in the midst of you, maybe you didn't follow the first part that I just said, you're in the middle of something, it's too late. Okay, here's the good news. Even in the middle of the mess, God can still make an appearance. Remember, at two of the lowest points in Hagar's life, in the middle of the desert, ready to die, that's when God showed up. It wasn't back at home when things are kind of tough or things are kind of difficult. Or I'm, it's like when she's at her lowest point, that's when God showed up for her. God provided for her. God proved himself to her. Now, she's kind of a major character in the story, but that's a big deal. But God would do that even for a, a, a minor, I meant to say minor, a minor character. Even though she's kind of eh, sort of a footnote in the story, she's got to be there for the purpose of the son being born. But still, God shows to show up to her twice. How about this? When the situation for Abraham and Sarah was impossible, God made the impossible happen. He performed. He came through. He kept his word. Even after they got in the way, God still showed up. Remember, even this theophany, the physical appearance of God in human form in Genesis, right? That's after Ishmael's born. After they've blown the plan. After they've wrecked everything. God still shows up for them. Even when Sarah laughs at God, he doesn't say, oh, that's, no, we're done. Sorry, eh, that's what I was, no, we're, you're, sorry, you can't laugh at me. You can't laugh at God, okay? Even when she laughed in God's face, God still kept his promise to her. Even when Sarah and Abraham acted impulsively and cruelly to others, God still kept his promise to them. The same is true for you and for me. Let me ask you, what instruction maybe have you ignored? from God? What stubborn decisions maybe have we made? What ill-advised thing have we done? What mess have we made? God can still show up in the midst of the mess. He can still make an appearance. Okay? So you might think, you know, I've, this relationship I have is broken beyond repair. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friendship that's just that's just, you know, kind of shriveled up and died. Maybe you've been a part of that. Maybe you've been the cause of that, okay? Maybe you look at your relationship with God, and you say, there's no way this thing can be repaired. Even if I wanted to, I don't really want to. Even if I wanted to, I don't think God would ever take me back for what I've said, what I've done, what I've thought. He knows every thought I've had. How is he ever going to bring me back? That's what God does. In the midst of the mess is when God shows up. Maybe you think an opportunity is completely blown. God can still show up. Maybe you think a mess is too big. Can I just encourage you? God has a huge custodial department for your mess. I think some of God's favorite words are clean up on aisle five. <laughs> like he wants to show up with the mop and a broom and a dust rag and say, let's figure this out. Like, if you listen to me, we could have avoided this, but now that the mess is here, we've got to clean it up. So if you're going to let me do this, we can, hang, we can do this together. That's what God loves to do. God will meet you at your lowest. God will meet you at your worst. God will lead you through the impossible. God will lead you through the unthinkable. And that's what the definition is of the word grace. It's a pretty big theme in the Bible. That's what God does. That's who he is. He is full of grace. He is grace. When we've blown it, he comes in the midst of our mess. So let me encourage you with this last thought, and then we'll pray. You still have a future because God still has a plan. Right? You still have a future because God still has a plan. So, Get out of his way, let him do what only he can do, and then you do what he wants us to do, right? When we work together with him, we will see that it doesn't have to be complicated. It might be difficult, it might be messy at times, but it doesn't have to be complicated. If we just let God do what he does, 
Don't do his job, but we know that in the midst of our mess, he can make an appearance. We can see it doesn't have to be complicated when God is involved.